This talk is brought to you by the Thomistic Institute. For more talks like this, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. We're going to be talking tonight about uh, the intellectual life of the mother of God. And I'm going to, there's a bit of uh, amateur art history that we're going to go. That's why we have beautiful slides. Um, there's also going to be an account of uh, the tradition about Mary's intellectual life uh, from the, the church fathers, which is on your handout. But I will uh, try to situate the questions that I think are raised in the broader questions about um, learning, learning for its own sake, its role in human flourishing, uh, which is the kind of thing I always talk about. Uh, so uh, I hope there'll be a big picture. Um, and, but those of you who like to geek out over the fathers over our history will have some stuff for you too. Um, so uh, part of what I have been arguing for the last little while is that learning for its own sake plays a central role in human flourishing and human happiness. So um, our flourishing as human beings, our fulfillment, our development into the kinds of human beings that we want and need to be, uh, it depends on our choices. And our choices depend on our motivations, our desires. And our motivations and our desires depend on, in my view, especially how we imagine ourselves. It relies very heavily on the imagination. So one of my concerns in my book, Lost in Thought, and I'll be dealing with tonight is how our images uh, of ourselves, our images of human success, our images of human flourishing, affect our motivation and how we might analyze them in a way that's, that's helpful for reshaping ourselves, redirecting ourselves, um, becoming more the people that we're meant to be. Um, so, uh, this in particular, because it's images of uh, Mary's intellectual life, it's images of learning and images of thinking. And we'll, we'll think, so we'll, we'll talk about how we imagine the life of study, what images we have for it, um, how we think of study in our imagination, and how that helps us to imagine our lives um, you know, in a way that's wholesome or in a way that's not wholesome. So um, I think our imagination is shaped largely by images like this. This is a picture of a person thinking. Uh, don't laugh, it is, she's thinking. Um, this is a group of thinkers. Um, all of the thinking in question, it's, ama it's amazing how much we pick up from a single image or a pair of images, right? We know that these people are successful. We know that they are working on uh, some, some kind of practical purpose. Um, they're making a difference. They're making Im impact. They're producing outcomes of one kind or another. Um, we know this from the way they're dressed. We know this from the furniture. We know this from the setting of the images. Um, and this is how our culture pictures success. And it's not just these two images are from the corporate world, but the, the trappings of success go beyond that. So for instance, um, this is an image of, this is Diane Keaton playing a playwright in uh, Something's Gotta Give, which was a, a romantic comedy, early 2000s. Um, now she's a playwright, 
she's an artist, um, but you can see uh, she has what at that time was a fancy computer. Okay, now it looks really fat and awkward, but um, there's, a, there's signs of wealth, status, accomplishment, um, beautiful haircut, nice outfit. Uh, this is a person who has uh, succeeded in life. Um, and some of those uh, signals that we saw from the corporate world are, are at work here too. This is the uh, New York Times editorial board, um, which is an image of people who work on arts and culture as well as uh, journalism and politics. Uh, once again, we have the sense of success, wealth, achievement, um, competitive uh, people who have outdone others in the world of competition. So I think if we have these images in mind as uh, how we think of thinking, of our own thinking, of our own learning, then we tend to see thinking as a means to status and influence of one kind or another. Now, status and influence is a broad category. Okay, there's corporate status and influence, there's literary status and influence, there's journalistic status and influence. Um, but in a, in a Christian context, pursuing status and influence is never ever the point of your life. Okay, it's always something which you're meant to withdraw from, and maybe you use it as a means to an end, but it's never ever the point of your life. So um, let's move into some other images there's intermediate. There's an intermediate image where I think the the call of of status and royalty and achievement is a little less obvious. Uh, this is Raphael's School of Athens, very famous fresco. Um, it's um, peppered with celebrity intellectuals, Plato, Aristotle, Pythagoras. I think Archimedes is in there. I think Diogenes is there. They're in this uh, heavenly court sort of an airy realm of imagined conversations. It's a kind of royal community, a gathering of the great. Um, so it's not surprising this type of image adorns, and I, I don't mean, to, don't, no one should take this personally. I would have had this in my dorm room when I was in college, but it's the kind of thing that adorns a dorm room of a certain kind of a student, okay? a certain kind of student who seeks to achieve in the realm of the intellect, okay? who wants to be one of the greats, to stand in the pantheon of the great minds. Uh, so. The, the kind of image I want to talk about tonight is um, in a way much more famous, much more common in European art uh, than even this one is. Uh, it's the image of a teenage girl who loved reading, as for example, this. So um, these, this image, this type of image, and we'll be looking at more paintings, it's very common in the Middle Ages and the Renaissance. Uh, it's an image of the Annunciation. Uh, this is the scene in the first chapter of the Gospel of Luke where the angel Gabriel greets Mary and tells her that she will become the mother of the Messiah. And after a bit of struggle, which we'll talk about, you know, how can this be, she asks. She answers finally and famously, be it done unto me according to thy word. She consents, she agrees to be the mother of the Messiah. So why, um, I don't have a pointer, so I might have to just walk over and point, which would be more fun anyway, it'll be like more, better entertainment, better quality entertainment. Um, why in these images is she holding a book? So here's, here's a book. Um, we'll move on to the next one, there'll be another book. 
lots of books. She's got a book stand. She's in the major, middle of a major project. This is my favorite, the next one, um, because she's clearly, this woman's doing work, okay? This is, this is a very serious course of study that's underway uh, when the angel turns up. Um, so I actually, if, if for what it's worth, I was, um, became interested in this question um, for personal reasons. I, I actually, I inherited a, a statue from my grandmother of a, a, my atheist grandmother, of a saint holding a book. And I was like, who is this woman and why is she holding a book? This is before I was Catholic. And eventually, I think I was procrastinating on something I was really supposed to be doing. I did, <laughs> I did all the research that, that comes out in this talk because um, I wanted to know why, why she was holding a book. So uh, I'll begin with what I learned about the history of this image. Um, and then I'll reflect on, on why it matters to us. Okay. So Mary's book doesn't only appear in images of the Annunciation. It also appears in, as, with Mary as Queen of Heaven. Um, this is the Ghent altarpiece. It's been stolen 13 times. Uh, you can see why. It's very magnificent, very beautiful. Um, so here she's throned as Queen of Heaven, reading a book. Um, here she is in the Garden of Paradise, uh, reading. And she's surrounded by other saints who are doing other things which look like they count as the culmination of a human life. Okay, there's playing music, there's eating a fruit, there's engaging in some kind of conversation. So these people are all engaged in forms of what you'd call leisure, uh, activities in which life culminates here in the, the Garden of Paradise. There's another common image of Mary with a book. It's um, uh, Saint Anne, her mother, teaching her how to read. Common image in uh, Christian iconography. Um, and uh, this is Raphael's uh, Madonna of the Goldfinch. So baby Jesus is giving baby John the Baptist a um, goldfinch. Uh, that's sort of the center of the picture. And somehow or other, Mary, even though she's watching two two-year-olds, uh, is, is reading at the same time. Uh, so um, so the, the image of her in a book is widespread. It appears in a variety of contexts. But um, the most interesting one is the Annunciation. Okay, this is, sorry, I dug this up and I was so proud I had to throw it into the slideshow. Uh, this is an Eastern, from the Eastern Church, uh, an image of Mary with a book. I'm not quite clear on how this Annunciation scene at the top connects with the, the book she's holding at the bottom. Um, but usually in the Eastern tradition, in the Byzantine tradition, she's seen with a spindle and not with a book. So I just, I just wanted, this is, this is a global tradition. It's not just, uh, not just in Europe. Okay. Um, so these, most of the paintings we're going to be looking at are from the 14th to 16th centuries. Um, and we'll be focusing on the Annunciation because I think that's, it's the most common image. It's also where I think the really richest spiritual meaning can be gotten from it. So this is, um, pretty old. It's, uh, 13th century. This is the outside of the cathedral at Chartres. You have, uh, the angel, you have Mary, you have the book in between them as if the book is somehow telling the story of what's happening. Uh, the oldest one I've been able to find an image of. Supposedly, I've, the art historians tell me that there are ivories from the ninth century with images of Mary with a book. I've never seen an image and I can't find them. And art historians are very cagey about their images. 
So uh, I, I hope I hope I'll get one sometime. If you have any connections, let me know. Uh, the oldest one I've been able to find an image of is this one from the 11th century, and this has all of the elements that we're interested in for this talk. Okay, so she has a book on a bookstand. We have the words of the angel, Ave Maria, because when he meets her, he says, Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with me. And then you have this very interesting, he's sending some kind of ray from his hand into her ear. Um, we're going to talk about that. What, what is going on with Mary's ear and the angel? Um, so sometimes the ray uh, appears with the angel. Um, or, sorry, sometimes it comes separately, but simultaneously. So this is a case where, I don't know how well you can see it. There's light coming through the window, and there's a baby Christ holding a cross, born on the light, little homunculus. He's headed straight towards her. This is also a beautiful nature. This is the Murillo altarpiece. It's in the Metropolitan in New York. Uh, she's holding a Torah cloth, very signs of Jewish worship, a prayer shawl, and a very mysterious extinguished candle. Um, which I, I find completely fascinating. Anyway, the, so the light is, the beam of light is carrying Christ. Um, sometimes it's, uh, it's a dove, holy, the Holy Spirit. Um, that sometimes it's just a ray of light. But this image in particular, I think you can see, it's, it's an image of the conception of Christ. Um, the, that beam, however we understand it, whether or not it's carrying a baby Christ with it, whether it's a ray of light, whether it has the dove of the Holy Spirit, it is the image of the conception of Christ. And here you can see that she almost already looks pregnant um, as, the, as the light hits. So um, then we have a few things a little bit... Okay, so there's, there's God the Father speaking the beam the beam is a little bit of gold i don't know if you can see it from the back a little bit of gold that comes from god the father up there through the window down into her ear and the angel is separate um then we have some especially later paintings there's no angel um there's just a book or maybe there's a dove and i take it these are a bit naturalized images of the Annunciation. So you take out the angels, you take out the miracles. It's a woman reading a book and something happens to her. Um, so these are all uh, so far peaceful images of uh, Mary's conception of the Annunciation. Um, they're, they're calm, they're beautiful. There's a, a sense of peace, but there is a, a Smaller tradition of it being a bit of an interruption. So this is a more minor interruption. This is Mary, the teenage bookworm. Okay. And the angel's coming in. She's like, look, I'm in the middle of my book. Please, can you come back? I'm almost done. Please, come back later. Uh, very cranky, beautiful teenage expression. Um, and we'll talk about this later. Notice that the, the words of the angel are going straight into her ear in this case. Um, so then we have, uh, from Titian and Tintoretto, much more violent images. So where the Annunciation appears to be a violent interruption into the life of Mary. 
and this is Tintoretto. Um, even though it looks like the wall is broken, right? It looks like the angel is tearing through the wall and she looks frightened. It has a real, uh, a sense of, of violence to it. Um, now, the more violent images raise the question for me of why the Bible, the scriptures themselves are silent as to, uh, mostly silent, as to the terror that would naturally accompany an announcement of this kind. So um, she is disturbed because an angel appears and says, hail, full of grace. That's startling. <laughs> um, and she asks, how, the, how can this be? So she's surprised that, she's, that um, she doesn't know quite how it's going to work, this being the mother of the Messiah. But we, if we know, if we imagine her as an actual living human being, um, we know that the message must have been quite disturbing because she's a young woman, she's betrothed to someone else, she's in a culture where being pregnant and unmarried is cause for uh, exile or death. Like, it's extremely serious undertaking that she's agreeing to. And the Bible is silent about that, says nothing about it. We know it must be true, but that's not what's there. What you have is, be it done to me according to my word, thy word, and then the next chapter you get the beautiful Magnificat, the praise of God that Mary gives when she sees her cousin. No sign apart from the, well, you know, Joseph clearly has a moment. He's still disturbed in the scriptures. But there's, there's not a sign really of, it's not much depicted of how, uh, dramatic a moment this really is. Um, so it seems to me that the reason why the scriptures focus on her consent and her praise is because they want to emphasize her freedom and her consent. Um, and the fact that this choice that she makes is in fact um, a, a choice for um, her own, I mean, you start to say things that sound a little diminishing, but for her, for the, for the salvation of the world, right? Um, but part of the contrast is, right, she's not, she's not raped like the, um, the mortals of the Greek myths by the gods. And I wonder whether Titian and Tintoretto are really thinking about Mary in light of those other um, pagan stories, the stories from the Greek myths, where uh, Zeus comes down and uh, rapes a human woman, and then there's, there's a demigod of some kind that's born, a, a, a person with a certain kind of mission. Um, so I, I think that this disturbance, the violence, is relatively rare for that reason. That is, um, there's a, a desire in the tradition to emphasize <clears throat> peace, harmony, consent, freedom, um, all of these aspects of uh, the moment of the Annunciation, the moment where Mary says yes to give birth to the Messiah. Um, and now at this point, I think we can start looking at the handout because I think that's part of what's shown also in the tradition. So she's a, she has a contemplative character, right? She keeps things and reflects on them in her heart. That's something that's repeated throughout Luke's gospel. She's not a person prone to violent disturbance. Um, sometimes 
in these images that the angel doesn't even seem to touch her awareness. It's behind a, a wall, as for example in this one. Um, she's, she's completely uh, uh, contained in her isolation, in her chamber, um, while this conception is, is underway. The angel is there, he's present, but she's not even really thinking about the angel. She's somewhere else. Um, so her communion with the book in many of these paintings is what the Annunciation and the Conception of Christ seem to consist in. Okay, so let's think more about this ray going to her ear. So the ray is the Holy Spirit. Here is a dove. It's the Holy Spirit on the one hand. It's enlightening her mind, helping her to understand something. On the other hand, it is uh, the words of the angel, the words of the scriptures being heard by her. So in the second part of your handout, we have this thing from Paul in the Romans. Faith comes through what is heard and what is heard through the word of Christ. So there's a connection, a deep connection between faith and hearing and the ear. Um, so uh, the words that she's hearing are not ordinary words. Uh, Mary's encounter with them is not an ordinary encounter with ordinary words. They're somehow the means by which she conceives the word of God. Jesus understood his word. So sometimes this is described uh, as in the, the Latin fathers as conceptio or some parts of the tradition, conceptio per aurum, conception through the ear. Um, and it's depicted sometimes very graphically. Oh, sorry, there's more. Um, that's, those are the words of the angel going into her ear. Uh, this is the Marian Capella in Würzburg in Germany. You can see it's hilarious tube coming down from God the Father reaching down into Mary's ear. Okay, very, very physical, concrete image of her conceiving through her ear. Um, now, uh, there's this notion of, con of conception through the ear was uh, famously mocked uh, early in the 20th century um, by a student of Freud's, Ernest Jones. And he quoted a... Um, seemed to quote Augustine saying something to the verbal equivalent of an image like this, what God spoke through the angel impregnated the virgin through the ears. Now this is just an interesting, uh, maybe we don't have that. There's an interest, there's a funny story for people who like scholarship about that, uh, but let's skip that. If you're interested, I'll tell you later. Ask me in the question period, I'll tell you about it. Um, so let me just say, I don't think the mockery makes a ton of sense uh, because the way that we hear always is through the ears. <laughs> There's no magical um, way of receiving speech, uh, not through the eyes or not through the ears or not through touch if you're uh, reading braille or something like that. It all comes in through the senses. There's no magical transmission of speech somehow magically into your pure consciousness. It comes through the ears. So for Mary to conceive through the ears, is a way of saying that she conceived through what she heard. Um, and there's nothing that seems to strike me particularly, it's miraculous, it's strange, but it's, it's not uh, worthy of mockery, it seems to me. Uh, 
So St. Augustine, you know, how, yeah, how else would we hear or listen except from through our ears? So Augustine writes very beautifully about this, the real Augustine now, that was the fake Augustine uh, before. Um, when you believe in the, oh wait, the virgin, the angel announces, the virgin hears, believes, conceives, faith in her mind, Christ in her womb. It's a common theme in Augustine's sermons. Mary conceives Jesus by her faith, not by um, lust or by any physical activity, through her faith. And that to me is also a sign of wholeheartedness. Um, so if you think about how most of us came into the world, it's probably not by a, a pure act of consent and love. There's all kinds of things going on when we're conceived. Uh, complicated situation of various kinds. And there's a kind of simplicity and wholeheartedness in Mary, simply hearing through her ears uh, the word that she will bear the Messiah, and through that hearing, conceiving Christ. Uh, so Augustine compares God's action to an, uh, the action of uh, God on Mary to the action on an ordinary believer. When you believe in the heart unto justice, you conceive Christ. When you, with the lips, you confess unto salvation, you give birth to Christ. So he continues, this is still Augustine in his sermons on the significance of hearing. He describes this gospel passage where a woman passes by who says, fortune is the womb who bore you. And the Jesus says, no, rather, blessed are those who hear the word of God and keep it. Uh, so that's why Mary, too, is blessed, according to Augustine. She heard the word of God and kept it. She kept the truth safe in her mind. This is now um, text five. Better than she kept flesh safe in her womb. Okay. That which is in the mind is greater than what is carried in the womb. Now, um, Augustine may seem to be diminishing the significance of the incarnation, the significance of the body. And I, I think that what he's actually trying to do is to hold out a prospect to an ordinary believer who is not going to physically give birth to an infant Christ, but to do something different. So what he's holding out to the ordinary believer is um, we can conceive Christ. Christ, we can become dwelling places of Christ by conceiving faith through hearing through hearing the word of God. Um, and of course, there's a famous incident in Augustine's own life of this, of him sitting in the garden uh, and hearing uh, the child's voice and then reading the Bible and hearing of having those words um, cut, cut straight to the bottom of his spirit and, and transform him. So uh, we, ordinary believers, cannot conceive Christ in our wombs, but we can conceive him in our hearts and minds. So now um, there's some beautiful passages from uh, the Eastern Fathers, from the Syrian. Uh, Mary, the thirsty land in Nazareth, conceived our Lord by her ear. Um, and he's comparing uh, Mary with the Samaritan woman at the well. You too, a woman thirsting for water, conceived the son by your hearing, by your listening to him. Mary planted him in the manger, but you planted him in the ears of his hearers. So Ephraim 2 is showing Mary at this moment to be a model for believers. That is, we who like her receive the word through our ears. So sometimes um, the fathers contrast Mary's ear, uh, receptive to the word of God, with 
uh, Eve's ear, receptive to the deceiving words of the snake in the garden. Um, and this also appears in some of the paintings. So here in the background is Fra Angelico. Um, uh, there's an Annunciation scene on the right, and there's Adam and Eve leaving the garden on the left. So Mary's intellectual virtues, her understanding and her wisdom undo Eve's intellectual vices. Her susceptibility to deception by the serpent and her doubt of the word of God, the doubt of God's commandment. So Ephraim says again, just as from the small womb of Eve's ear, death entered in and was poured out, so through a new ear, that was Mary's life entered and was poured out. And then there's also a passage there from Tertullian, if you prefer your Latin fathers to your Syrian fathers. So Mary's hearing of the word and her conceiving in faith is a key part of the peace, uh, the peaceful spirit of the, both the Bible passages, the Bible story, and the paintings. Their naturalness, their nonviolence, their harmoniousness, their balance. Consent is central, and consent, I think this is crucial, consent becomes richer as understanding becomes greater. So consent becomes richer as understanding becomes greater. So consider our consent to marry someone, however mysterious it is, however little we know this person, it's richer when we know the person deeply, right? So um, if we've just met them on a cruise to the Bahamas, or if we're ignorant or naive, or if our minds have been shaped by false images, then our consent will mean a bit less um, at that beginning and moment, that consent to be married. So that the richer a person's understanding, the more full and rich is their consent to what they're choosing. So to see this at work in Mary, um, let's go back to the earliest sources I know of for um, this tradition of her as a reader, as, as someone with a rich intellectual life. And that's Origen, which is uh, passage nine. So he's explaining, he's concerned about Mary's surprise that, she, that she's disturbed at the arrival of the angel. And she says, she explains, he explains that she's only surprised because she knew that the greeting hail full of grace was unprecedented in scripture. So she's read the Bible so carefully that she's like, well, wait a second. This is not what Bibles, this is not what angels sound like. Angels don't talk like this. What's going on here? Uh, so this is Origen's picture of, of Mary. Um, she knew, this is the passage on the handout. She knew the law. She was holy and she learned the writings of the prophets by meditating on them daily. So Ambrose, who is a bishop of Milan and the mentor of Augustine, in his own commentary on Luke, suggests, just like Origen did, that Mary studied the prophets and she knew especially the messianic prophecies. So she would have read Isaiah that a virgin would give birth to the king of kings. The virgin would give birth to the Messiah. So all she has to learn from the angel is that she is that virgin. She already knows the story from the prophets. So here is Ambrose, and this is um, followed by other fathers like Bede, the English father Bede. Um, so, um, so she believed, therefore, I'm reading that a bit down in it. This is 10 on the handout. Um, she believed that it should be, but how it was to take place, she had never read. Um, so uh, the painters express 
this particular tradition of Mary by showing the book that she's reading to be Isaiah 7. So here's one example. This is Tomasa de Massa. If you look closely at the book on her lap, it says, Ecce Virgo, Behold the Virgin Shall Conceive. Um, likewise, Matthias Grunewald, if you look carefully at the book, zoom in, Ecce Virgo, Behold the Virgin Shall Conceive. Um, so in this way, imagining Mary, she knows Jesus in some way before he arrives. She's read all about him in the Bible. Um, she's learned from reading and study and prayer the promises of God and how to recognize them as they unfold in real life. So she knows uh, about the coming of God's salvation in the form of the Messiah and that he'll be born of a virgin. And once again, the Syrian fathers have some uh, brilliant instances if you turn to the other side of the handout. Um, so in this image from Ephraim the Syrian, Mary's holding Jesus on her lap. It's in her voice. Uh, Isaiah gave your good news of Emmanuel. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and give birth. Am I having a dream or a vision that behold on my lap is Emmanuel? She's recognizing that the baby in her lap is the baby that she read about in the scriptures. Um, then I also have to, I have to throw in this um, hilarious dialogue from the Syriac tradition um, between Mary and Joseph as to who knows the scriptures better. So he's, he's accusing her by saying that she um, must not be a virgin because it says in the scriptures that virgins don't conceive. And she says, no, you know, I think you need to read that again, Joseph, because if you look at Isaiah, it actually says a virgin will conceive. So just, just saying, read your Bible, Joseph. I'm, I'm right here. Um, uh, it's very, very wonderful passage. Uh, so uh, the idea that she's reading Isaiah is not universal in all of the art. It's just one strand. Uh, sometimes it seems like she's reading a Psalter, a book of Psalms or a book of hours, she's praying. Um, sometimes, as we've seen in the earlier pictures, it's a whole course of study she's going under. There's, a, there's an image I've never seen, but I've heard about it. It's at a church in Scotland somewhere. Uh, but apparently, Mary is sitting in a study, and, and Aristotle's physics is behind her on the shelf. Um, I, if anywhere, again, if anyone ever sees it, send it to me. I, I want a picture of this. Um, so it's, it's quite a general sense of her, of her intellectual development. Um, okay, so uh, the crucial fact, I think, for the Fathers of the Church, these passages we've looked at, is the virtues of Mary. She has to be, in order to do what she's, to carry out this particular task of giving birth to the Messiah and bringing him to adulthood and so on, she has to be a pretty high, highly uh, developed human being. She has to be courageous, I think is evident in the gospel on any reading to say yes to this uh, crazy charge. Uh, she also has to be wise and learned to be hungry to know the things of God. Um, and so here the, the other two passages in the handout are uh, a little florid, but they're interesting. I've got to throw them in there for complete mistake. So there's an apocryphal biography of Mary from the seventh century where she's praised as um, no one was more learned than wisdom of the law of God. Of course, she could also sing. 
steadfast, immovable, unchangeable. Okay, no one ever saw her angry. Okay, this is when I get a little impatient with, with certain kinds of text messages. Um, I, I, I start to feel too much distance between me and, and the holy person. Um, then uh, Maximus the Confessor, uh, in the next passage, um, she, um, the discipline and knowledge of her soul developed with the growth of her body. Uh, she loved learning and was an excellent student. She was an expert in every good subject and filled with understanding the divine scriptures and all wisdom because she was to become the mother of the word and wisdom of God. She was clever with words, had a pleasant voice. So let's take a step back and ask ourselves, why does Mary's wisdom and intelligence matter? Um, why did the fathers seek to view her as learned and well-read, as anticipating in her heart and mind the shape of God's will for her? So we can return to the question of her consent, her capacity to agree to what was in simple terms a terrible fate. Mary, where, where does Mary get the strength to consent in this way? Um, we can appeal easily to the supernatural character of her faith. We can, to miraculous interventions of various kinds. Um, and miracles are real, but I think magical thinking is, in, as in every kind of thinking, one of the pitfalls of faith. So we don't, we don't want to... Um, to appeal to her consent as somehow miraculous would to miss the point that the fathers and the artists all assume, which is that Mary is a model human being for us. We model for us after Christ and offered to us in a way that's a bit more merciful because she's not a mere human being. I mean, sorry, she is a mere human being, not the, the God man like Jesus Christ. Uh, so we can it's walk in her footsteps. She's more accessible. She's a purely magical creature. She can't be a model for us. So we can't, we can't command grace, right? We can only prepare for its coming uh, by modeling our lives after her. So this is sort of getting to the core of my question, which is what is the human basis, or what we call in Catholic theology, the natural basis of Mary's consent? And Ambrose is, uh, I think, the first voice in the tradition that suggests that she's actually reading at the Annunciation. So the passage we've seen so far is she's, she's a reader, she's a thinker. <laughs> and then you have all these paintings of her reading at the Annunciation. But in the tradition, the, the moment where those two come together, as far as I can tell, is in, in, in this passage of Ambrose, which is last on the handout. So when the angel entered, she was found at home in privacy, without a companion, that no one might interrupt her attention or disturb her. She did not desire any women as companions who had the companionship of good thoughts. Moreover, she seemed to herself less alone when she was alone, for how could she be alone who had with her so many books, so many archangels, so many prophets? So the paintings show, all the paintings we've looked at, they always show what Ambrose describes, her solitude. She's sheltered and enclosed in her study, which echoes the garden enclosed from the Song of Songs, the soul of the believer that awaits God the lover, awaits in silence, quiet, darkness, and suffering, the personal visitation of God. Her bookish solitude is a sign of her independence, her being somewhat self-contained as far as the social world is concerned. 
her focused absorption in the task that's in front of her, her undistractedness, her wholeheartedness. It's emphasized at the moments of, of the angel's appearance because the angel's proposal is such a grave challenge. It's comparable really only, I think, only to God's invitation to Abraham to slaughter his son. And it's a dramatic challenge to uh, become uh, pregnant as a young woman in the particular society that she's in. So her inward focus, her love for words and teachings, enables her to consent regardless of the social consequences of what she's being asked to do. And only a trust in a goodness that's beyond any offered by social life could have let her do that. And that trust is nurtured, it's suggested, by inward seclusion, retirement, prayer, study, and endurance. So these features of Mary's life are described for us in a way that models it for us, or in the, image, or in the images, so that we too can conceive of Christ in faith and give birth to him in word and in action. So some, in the paintings, this is a good example. She's also, she's alone, she's in solitude. She's removed from any urban context. This is an interesting one by Carla Crivelli because the contrast with the city outside is immediately drawn. So she's in her chamber, there's stuff going on outside. There's a deal being cut on the balcony up there. There's some gossip going on back there, I think. I'm not sure what this little guy who's standing in the, the windowsill is doing. Uh, these paintings are always full of details like that. You never quite know what's going on. Um, but she's, um, so she's, her shelter, her hidden room is always emphasized. It's always in private. And it represents that intimate meeting of the word of God uh, and herself, where the word is understood both as that divine invitation that's immediately understood and as Christ himself she carries in his room. So it's interesting to to contrast her with another famous, other famous paintings of another famous Catholic intellectual, um, this is Saint Jerome. He's out in the desert. That's his pet lion. Yeah, who he, he pulled a thorn out of his paw, and then, according to legend, uh, the lion was friendly to him ever since. Now, Jerome is totally removed from human habitation. He's in the wilderness or the desert. I think I have another one here. Um, yeah, so he's. Uh, completely remote from human habitation. There's a, this, here the book is kind of hard to see. I think it's right. Oh, actually, I think this is the plant. I think there's a book there. I think that's what that is. Maybe it's a little altar. I'm not confident, but anyway. He's, St. Jerome is in the desert in, in Palestine, translating the Bible, which is based on what he actually did. So um, his withdrawal is total, but the images of Mary are always her withdrawn in domestic life. So it's in a house where presumably other people are somewhere, or it's in a city where there's other people in other buildings. So it's a different kind of withdrawal, and I find that intriguing. It's not total uh, abandonment of uh, human society like St. Jerome. It's, it's somehow a withdrawal into oneself that's compatible with uh, domestic life, life in the city, life with others. So uh, I've claimed that Mary's uh, solitude, inwardness, seclusion, and love of study is the human basis for her receptivity to grace. And I'd like to conclude by illustrating some of the universality or the humanity of uh, that aspect of her by seeing them reflected elsewhere. 
um, in some surprising parallels with uh, non-religious, non-Catholic, non-devotional contexts. So here's uh, Albert Einstein in his book Stan. Um, whenever I talk to university, I always have to talk about Einstein because he was a uh, judge of failure as a grad student in physics. He couldn't find work teaching at a university, couldn't fail in the job market. So I know there's grad students here, like, it's okay. <laughs> you know, Einstein worked in a patent office, and in his spare time, he wrote the papers that turned physics upside down. Um, so he called the patent office um, the worldly cloister where I hatched my most beautiful ideas. So he understood this place where he was, the patent office, as being like that secluded room that we see Mary in. Uh, another image. Uh, this chimes are very beautiful, aren't they? Uh, this is an image I've talked about a lot. This is from a French film called The Hedgehog, The Hérisson. This is Renée. She's the concierge of a uh, middle-class, uh, really upper-class, very wealthy aristocratic French apartment building in Paris. She's basically like the building superintendent. She lives in the basement. Um, she's a kind of unusual romantic lead. You can see from her, her middle age. Um, her slouchy cardigan. Um, she has a secret room in the back of her apartment where she reads and studies and thinks. And uh, this is an image of her back there um, in, in seclusion, in isolation, and where this person um, lives out her, her real flourishing human life, her life that's removed from the world of social competition. Okay, this is not really a picture of Socrates withdrawn in study, but it is worth remembering that there are literary images to this effect. So Socrates, when he's described in Plato's Symposium as on the threshold of Agathon's dinner party, and suddenly he just gets starts thinking about something, and he just stays there on the doorway while everyone else goes in and has to be gotten, rescued back. That's a moment of him in the middle of the world, in the middle of a party, in the middle of a crowd, suddenly withdrawing in solitude and silence and contemplation. And lastly, my favorite story, well, one of them, uh, Archimedes. Um, uh, so Archimedes, a famous uh, a geometer, mathematician, physicist. Um, he helped the Syracusans design all kinds of war machines to protect them from the Romans. Romans came anyway, but he was so busy doing his proofs, according to the story, that he doesn't notice um, the soldiers actually invading the city, breaching the wall and invading the city. And apparently he is, he's killed um, because this, the soldier, he, soldier tells him to come see the, the Roman authorities. And he's like, let me finish my proof. I, want, I, I just got to finish this one thing. Just, just wait, for, don't interrupt me while I'm, while I'm doing my mathematical proof. So this is a visual image of that moment where he's uh, doing geometry in the sand. The soldiers have come in. He hasn't noticed yet. Um, so uh, withdrawal, solitude, leisure, and focus, these are human means to a supernatural destiny. Uh, they are the natural goods on which grace operates. And on that, I'll conclude my talks.